Politics of Energy Justice in the Anthropocene, Episode 54. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we join another energy policy research group, that's EPRG, roundtable discussion from the Central European University. The topic this week is reevaluating energy justice in the Anthropocene. It's an awesome episode. All parts of society need to prepare to change to deal with climate change. And our discussion provides an understanding of how energy justice actually can change and can be applied to communities who are normally left out. This is one of the strengths of using energy justice as a framework. The discussion also forces us to switch our perspective on the energy transition. And this is really interesting because it does this by flipping on its head. Okay, I kind of made that up, but still kind of reversing how we see things. For, for example, that fossil fuel use was actually a good choice as an energy carrier. As you'll hear, it's kind of like fossil fuels are probably the least efficient form of energy, at least beneficial in means of being beneficial for society to use, as they are inherently, we'll say almost inherently, unjust in the energy system. So what we really need to do is redo and reevaluate what kind of energy system we do want to have. And this is the strength that our speakers bring today. And before I introduce the speakers, though, I have to say thank you to my students for coming up with a fantastic list of speakers who do provide a fundamentally different perspective on energy justice and, I think this is so important, the energy transition. We have here an amazing show that provides a broad spectrum of cutting-edge scholarship. It kind of sounds packaged, but it's true. This is really cutting-edge. And really, they provide and they bring a wealth of uh, perspectives, a wealth of experience and information about how we should re-examine and reapply energy justice to the energy transition. The first speaker is Professor Ankit Kumar, who is a lecturer at the Department of Geography in uh, Development and Environment at the University of Sheffield. Our second speaker is Shakti Ramkumar, and she's the Director of the Communications and Policy at Student Energy. It's a global youth organization that works with the next generation of leaders. Then we have, finally, Professor Kara Dagat, and she is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Tech. And I'm being very brief on each of their bios, but I just want to kind of like quickly summarize and move on to the speakers about the key issues that we do discuss. I think the best way to summarize the discussion is say that the speakers turn energy justice, as I mentioned, on its head, and we get this different perspective in this episode. I think for me, it was really interesting because it was definitely different from no other readings, I would say, that I do in energy justice that appear much more mainstream. And with this, for example, with Kara, she points out the, that the built narrative around renewables, that they will push out fossil fuels, kind of goes against what we're actually doing, that fossil fuels are still here, and it just seems like we're consuming more and more energy rather than transitioning from one, we could say, fuel source to something that's much more sustainable, not just in the environmental sense, 
but in the social sense as well. And that's what we really need to be aiming for. This is why energy justice is very important to discuss in terms of the energy transition. And what's nice though, or what's interesting, is that by turning away from this techno-social perspective that sees technology as leading the way, we should actually have society uh, having and making a contribution and being the, the end point of what kind of energy transition do we want to have. So it can't just be technology leading the way. But we have to bring society and all members, this is the big strength of a discussion today, is that it's definitely out of the mainstream, I would say, of, of wealthy developed countries and groups in, in those benefiting from the transition. But what about other marginalized groups? And we have a wonderful discussion on this. It takes even a neo-colonialist perspective. So I don't know, if you're really into energy justice or you just are curious about it, this is the episode to listen to to really understand the broad range that energy justice can be applied in and also how we should think differently about this energy transition. It's really changed my, my thinking on the transition process. And with that, I just want to thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. The purpose is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And I would say this episode definitely delivers. So enjoy listening. Now for this week's episode. Times of energy justice, what can we change? And with that, we're going to start our energy policy research group. This is also our current topics in energy policy, which I have efficiently combined together. But uh, I would say the, the purpose of this course is really to talk about the current topics and certainly in the area of energy studies. And we talk about energy justice. We talk about uh, energy poverty, like we did this morning in another class. And all these things are coming together in the energy transition. And it's very important that we just don't think of what technology, and I'm taking kind of inspiration from Kara's article that we did the reading for, where we just don't think about it's just technology that we need to change, but rather, how do we even look at and what are the stories of the narrative of this energy transition and previous ones, and who's telling it too? but we kind of have to reverse things and take a different perspective. And I think that's really powerful. And I think with our collection of speakers today, we are absolutely doing that. So let me just do a very, actually I should introduce myself. So I'm Michael LaBelle, professor here at uh, Central European University. And I teach in the environmental science and policy department and also the economics and business department. Uh, right around this area of energy transitions, energy justice, and I would even throw in geopolitics because that's certainly fashionable now in Central Europe. And um, yeah, so that's what I do here. And then we're joined by, and I'm going to kind of change the order I slightly. I hope this is not a problem, and I didn't uh, explain this to the speakers ahead of time, but looking at it uh, with Akit Kumar, uh, is a lecturer at the Department of Geography and Development and Environment at the University of Sheffield. And so, Akita, if it's okay that you go first, okay? What I'm trying to do is spread out the academics. So, so you go first because I think it's much more um, policy-related. And then we have Shak Shakti Ramkumar, 
is the Director of Communication and Policy at Student Energy and Global Youth Organization. And Shakti, please expand on, on what your organization does too, along with, and I think our students are really receptive and at the right uh, time period in their careers to know about what the Student Energy Organization does. And then we're, we're also fortunate to have um, Professor Kara Daggett. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Tech. And I just want to point out that her book is called, that she released in 2019, The Birth of Energy, Fossil Fuels, Thermodynamics, and the Politics of Work. I, we have it now at the CEU library, so we have an e-version. So after this, everyone can read it tonight before they go to sleep. Uh, I'm sure everyone will be awake all night long reading it, so maybe you'll have to wait till tomorrow. But uh, we do have the available. So uh, with that, and my apologies to the speakers not to tell them the order ahead of time, but um, maybe I turn over to Akit um, to start with his presentation. Thanks a lot, Michael. Um, thanks for inviting me here. Also, it's such a privilege to be on this uh, this panel with Kara and, and Shakti. Um, so I will try to share my screen. Ooh, the host has disabled participants. Yeah. Share. Would you be so kind to allow me? <laughs> okay. I gave yes. you permission. I think okay. you're okay. Thanks a lot. Yes, I think it works now. Uh, so can you see my screen now? Okay, perfect. So um, uh, Michael talked, uh, asked me to talk a little bit about uh, this question that he posed to me. Does urgent action interfere with long-term just rollout of sustainable energy systems? And to hear talk about a little bit about heterogeneity and power relations. And this, uh, this is based on um, uh, edited volume we do, did recently, uh, to which uh, I and some other colleagues wrote an introduction, framing it around the Anthropocene, Anthropocene uh, debate. And we pose that as, an, an, as the Anthropocene dilemma. And this dilemma for us was a dilemma between the question of urgency, the urgency of energy transitions, and the question of justice, the justice that needs to be embedded within the energy transitions. Um, so since that, uh, that book came out and the introduction that we wrote, I have uh, written another version of, of that idea, a similar idea, but, but another version of that, let's say chapter, um, which is currently under review in a, uh, in a journal, in a geography journal. And I will base my talk today uh, around that that uh, paper that, that I finished um, earlier last year, late last year. So um, let's, uh, let's dig into that then. Um, oops, I do change this. Okay, all right, so, okay. So um, I imagine uh, many of you are already familiar with this idea of the Anthropocene. It is currently a dominant uh, contemporary social and spatial idea very much seeped into uh, public culture as well. So here I've given you some of these um, snippets. Uh, there are songs now coming out uh, with the name of the Anthropocene. Um, Grimes, who's, who's a very well-known artist, released a whole album, um, I think a couple of years ago, titled Miss Anthropocene. 
so this this kind of this idea of anthropocene has has really dissipated and and got into public imaginary also now um i would i would argue not just not just with the academic not just with the academics so uh what is this idea of the anthropocene so uh post-colonial scholar deepesh chakraborty explains this idea as anthropocene reminds us that humans for, for for the first time in history has emerged as a geophysical force meaning that human all of us together and our technologies have created such an impact that we are we have created a very fundamental and irreversible shift in human history and human capability so we have we have suddenly shown a cap capacity to to alter earth's climate in a sense which which is uh, which was unfathomable in a sense that um, that the climate is so complex and the earth system is so complex that uh, that human beings can uh, alter it but we have uh, climate change is a clear evidence for us uh, and our numbers with our large numbers and technology that we use we've been able to uh, we know clear evidence of anthropogenic climate change so that, uh, in a sense, uh, brings to fore what the idea of Anthropocene is, human beings emerging as a big force that can change Earth's system uh, in many ways. And climate change is one evidence of that. Now, quite importantly, this article uh, from Deepesh Chakravarti that I cite on this, um, on this slide uh, was one of the first uh, articles to come out about about the Anthropocene uh, and the dilemmas that it creates back in 2012. And it's, it's, a, it's a much debated article, much critiqued article also. So, so in this article um, and, and, uh, and his, uh, many of his following works, Dipesh Chagriparthi uh, brings to fore two images of human beings that, that inhibit the Anthropocene. Humans as a political force and as a geological force. As political beings, we human beings seek justice as supposedly right-bearing citizens in many different nation states. But while, while knowing fully well that full justice is un unachievable in the human system, therefore we continue to engage in a struggle of survival politics. And we can understand this idea of survival politics as a politics of and for justice. But as a geological force, humans, that is all humans, emerge as a collective author of actions that have resulted in the climate crisis. And this second part, humans as a geological force, as a collective, this is the main argument behind the dominant framing of the Anthropocene. And that's what makes this idea somewhat dangerous also. This dominant framing of an abstract universal Anthropos is problematic in many ways, not least for its racial, uh, for the racial and colonial logics embedded within it. Eric Swingadu reminds us that Anthropocene debates centering the universal has the potential to make climate change post-political, right? So diffusing all the politics by, by creating this idea of universal human beings, all of us together responsible. A post-political condition is one in which power and politics are written out of the mainstream account of environmental transformation. And one of the two explanations is promoted. One, we are all in this together equally. And two, this is a result of abstract forces like capitalism, which serve as a teleological black box, as Ranganathan and Dosi have argued. 
So these, uh, these risks the exclusion of explicit politics of justice. And that's what makes this, uh, this idea dangerous also. But driven by a uh, post-colonial sensibility that forces us to think through heterogeneity, we can see that the challenge in front of us now is to work with these two disjunctive images of humans together. So humans, we need to bring these two images together somehow so that we can maintain urgency, but also at the same time justice. This is because Anthropocene calls us to unite, but its impacts are and will be felt differently. If we need to be politically or even discursively, um, or if we, uh, if we need to politically or even discursively understand, experience, and respond as a geological force, such response, I would argue, needs to be built by ethically centering subaltern groups who the global capital exploits and who are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, historically and in the contemporary world. As Madden reflects, all spaces increasingly reflect a concern for an impact of the climate emergency. This is being overlaid on, on other sociocultural and economic crises, so that the climate crisis is also constitutively shaped by other problems, processes, and hierarchies. Now we can see clear evidence of this manifesting in new neoliberal projects around smart grids and cities and eco-gentrification which argue for this need of urgency and decimate people in, in, uh, in their path. Indeed, there is a risk of tipping the political Anthropocene, as Sungadu argue, uh, warns us, into the apolitical or post-political Anthropo-obscene. In addition, the urgency debate and the need to unify an, uh, under a, an Anthropocene narrative could further delegitimize alternate forms of cultural knowledge and embodied practices, and in doing so, reproduce and reinforce injustices. As Catherine Yusuf reminds us, geological, geology, and by, its, by implication geography, a discipline that I'm embedded in, and the Anthropocene are deeply embedded in history of racialization, racial discrimination, and colonization. Therefore, a more political Anthropocene demands and engagement with a wide range of issues and approaches. So while the normative discourse of Anthropocene risks depoliticization, it is crucial to remember that to stress that Anthropocene is a master narrative should not detract us from the suggestion that it is a narrative, not the narrative. However, a post as post-colonial and decolonial scholars point out, the question of how to manage this urgency justice dilemma itself is not debated on an equal playing field. Political, economic, and scientific institutions emphasize and amplify narratives from the global north compared to those from the global south. What is important then is that we use this narrative of Anthropocene to confirm the importance of decolonizing political, economic, and scientific institutions, not to deny urgency, but to create a space for new narratives of the, on the dilemma. So for, following Tariq Jazil, rather than recolonization of knowledge, a closure, we can uh, work with the idea of Anthropocene to create opening for decolonizing our knowledge systems, to work towards uh, what uh, Juanita Sandberg, uh, picking up from Sami scholar, Runa Koran, uh, I forget her name now, 
um, I can I can give you the citation. Um, uh, talks about uh, multi-epistemic uh, literacy. Right, so we need to decolonize our knowledge systems and work towards a more multi-epistemic literacy. So in, it is in this spirit that I, I looked uh, at an engagement with the, with the Anthropocene for energy transitions, for the field of energy transitions, and also for the field of energy geographies. I look for a more political Anthropocene, one that tackles urgency of collective action while keeping a politics of justice at its center. This question of justice in, in the era of urgency might help build a wider alliance of responsibility, one that a politics of Anthropocene demands while keeping a firm footing in the politics of intra-human justice, one that a politics of Anthropocene cannot and cannot be allowed to avoid. So the question for us is, how do we progress this anti and decolonial thought within a somewhat colonizing discourse of urgency in and of the Anthropocene. So I want to outline uh, quickly and briefly three areas of work that could enrich energy transitions further in my view, but this is among many other, many other ideas, thought processes and uh, knowledge systems that we need to engage with. So the first one that I want to uh, talk about is the question of histories. There's, uh, this question for me is, is two part. One, histories of energy, but other is also histories of places. So uh, histories of places around the world. I will um, not touch upon that uh, today, but hopefully in the article when it comes out, we'll be able to read it. I will talk briefly about histories of energy. So we know that the historical uses and abuses of energy, whether it's physical energy or fossil energy were and are premised on colonization and racial exploitation, whether of enslaved Black and Indigenous Americans or indentured South Asians. So uh, work in, uh, in mines, work on plantations, so transatlantic slave trade, plantation and mine work, or all are evidence of racialized physical energy for harvesting solar energy. So plantations clearly, the use of physical energy of enslaved um, Black Africans on plantations was a use of physical energy, human physical energy, um, or, or use of human beings as energy, right? Dehumanizing people and using them as energy to harvest solar energy in, this, in these plantations or for extracting fossil energy from, from mines. So these patterns of extraction of bodily energy and the extraction of bodily uh, energy to excavate fossil energy or to facilitate technologies premised on fossil energy, continue in contemporary transitions to renewable energy. And that is an important facet of work that we need to focus on in this question of justice within, within the urgent transitions that we need. So for example, mining for minerals needed for, for solar energy is often ignored. Who, who is mining, who is forced to mine these energy, these, these minerals labor conditions in solar PV factories. Uh, new research is now coming out about solar PV factories uh, in China and Malaysia and, and the conditions of workers there, or the acquisition of land for big big solar farms, which, and that, that is not a new, um, um, sort of a new um, idea. These, these big uh, acquisition of big land um, masses previously happened also for wind farms. And now we see the same kind of pattern being um, 
reproduced in case of solar farms also. So this, this, uh, this idea of um, understanding whose bodily energy is being extracted and whose land is being uh, acquired um, and what kind of conditions are pe people being put in under the name of this urgent energy transitions is quite important, I would argue, for this question of justice. So the histories of energy uh, here is important. I also talk about histories of places. So histories, uh, history within the field of energy has been quite biased towards European and American experience. We've, we have many books about history of electricity uh, in Europe and America, but these histories have not been written about other parts of the world or other parts of the world. And I think that's also an important uh, work to be done uh, by scholars, but I will not go into more details into that today. So the second thing I want to point out is the question of difference, the question of race, caste, and indigeneity. So again, picking up from this question of history, the racialized nature of the industrial scale extraction of energy, as uh, Lennon talks about, um, historically from slaves and contemporarily from people of color, whether in global north or global, global south. So these, uh, these um, um, the solar factories that I talked about and the mining that I talked about, these again depend, uh, depend on uh, people of color largely in most parts of the world, but also there are questions of modern slavery within these, uh, these practices. And historically also, for example, in South Africa, although democracy was in place for namesake, apartheid uh, endangered, um, engendered a, a narrow and racialized democracy that excluded black majority, including energy workers from power in both economy and polity. So here black workers did not have rights uh, to, to collectivize and to unionize and to demand labor rights. And this is a very different kind of history of labor uh, this this uh, racialized de-democratization and disempowerment of coal workers is quite different from the links between democracy and fossil fuel that is uh, that is within uh, a widely cited work uh, for example of carbon democracy by timothy mitchell that many of us have read uh, this kind of racialized um, de-democratization um, does not exist in those those narratives and they these this racialized de-democratization still happens in, in many parts of the world. Um, um, although apartheid uh, in South Africa, apartheid has ended, but, but the practices in many parts of the world still exist. And in a lot of my own work, I've, I've talked about caste injustice within the energy, uh, energy system and it's been a key focus for my work. So if you look at uh, some of my papers from 2015 to now, you will uh, see that I discuss caste-based social, cultural, and economic histories and how they mediate access to energy and benefits of energy projects, projects in Indian villages. And, and I hope to continue working on that in the future as well. So that this question of difference becomes very important to, to think about justice within, uh, within this urgent discourse of Anthropocene and energy transitions. And quite importantly, questions of indigeneity while, while uh, there's a lot of discussion of questions of indigeneity, these questions are much more complicated and demand careful and long-term grounded ethno and ethnographic engagement in post-colonial contexts like India, because there it becomes, there's, there's multi-layered question of indigeneity. As Gargan explains, many Indian anthropologists believe indigeneity does not apply to India since the entire country was colonized by Europeans. 
But in the Indian context, indigeneity needs to be understood, Dargan argues, as self-contained self communities whose cultures, knowledge systems were subsumed under the dominant nationalist historiographies and Hindu caste hierarchies following British expulsion. And this, this idea of indigeneity within post-colonial contexts, this helps pry open claims of equity and development made by post-colonial states and to show how racialize, racializing imperialistic state power both expands and fractures through the development of energy infrastructure in different parts of, of these nation states, post-colonial nation states. And the final thing that I want to touch upon is a question of epistemology. So in the paper, I talk about uh, primarily from my own, uh, the, the epistemologies that I engage with, but obviously there are, there are a wide range of epistemologies that we need to bring, bring in here. So I give example of uh, critical race theory and post-colonial decolonial theory in the paper, but today I, I will touch only upon uh, critical race theory here uh, with us. And a lot of discussion that I've had until now, you will see, uh, you will have already uh, gauged draws upon, uh, partly upon critical race theory also. So Ranganathan and Bartman uh, call for radical scholarship that confronts racism and environmental harm together and recognize climate justice. Climate justice is not just about climate. And I think this applies quite well to uh, energy transitions also in the same way in the same vein we can also argue that thinking about energy justice is not just about energy and that could be quite productive for us here to step out of the energy frame and think about energy justice that is not just about energy so Catherine yusuf reminds us of the inherent role of energy uh, in a racialized organization of the world the self-definition of european subjectivity as valuable or valued against the fossil nature uh, of, of indigeneity and fossil energy of the enslaved. So as Ranganathan and Bartman, uh, Bartman argue, what is at stake here is reclaiming what means to be human in this, this question of energy justice. And this is much more uh, um, discussed question. Uh, uh, this is the much more uh, much discussed question of the universal man who was a mirror of European man. If we go back to the to the history of colonization, uh, an out an outcome then uh, was and is uh, is that non-white others um, non-white others have been rendered primitive or even subhuman through a process of colonial colonial exploitation, capitalism, and patriarchy, as Ranganathan and Bartman uh, explain. And this racial uh, nature of the world of a world shaped by energy and the racialization inherent in the flows of energy, transit, uh, transit spaces of electricity wires, disposition around gas and oil flows, demand and engagement with critical race theory, I would argue. Uh, and I'm not alone in arguing that. Um, illustrating the contemporary and everyday violence within the energy system, Luke and Heinen remind us of individuals struggling to pay uh, energy bills those poisoned by breaking and drinking, uh, sorry, those poisoned by breathing and drinking petrochemical uh, contaminants, the lives lost through disaster that climate change ex uh, exacerbates. But Luke and Heinen also see community energy solar policy making a new, a new Orleans within the abolitionist politics that have come before and, and beginning with the demands of reparations. 
So here, renewable energy then becomes a hopeful vehicle for social justice, and that's that's something that we can uh, we can derive some some hope from. For Luke and Heinen, uh, the the engagement with the renewable energy is not just about redistributive justice, rather more about reparative politics, which requires innovation to ensure community control, including inclusive finance, democratic, democratic restructuring of utilities, unionization of solar energy uh, workforce. And I talked about early, earlier how unionization itself was, was and is quite racialized, and addressing of environmental injustice in communities that bear the brunt of energy systems toxic practices. So Ranganathan and Bartman find clear overlap between housing and climate justice facilitated, facilitated by a need for low carbon uh, transitions. While better housing for everyone can reduce energy demand and carbon emissions, simply changing housing stocks also risk gentrification for more deprived neighborhoods. And Jennifer Rice and colleagues have shown this in their work. So Ranganathan and Bartman therefore argued that the coming together of Black Lives Matters um, and environmental activism suggests that anti-racist humanism is paramount to contemporary environmental justice movements. And I would argue also for energy justice movements. Therefore, looking towards Paul Gilroy, Ranganathan and Bartman remind us of a reparative humanism, a humanism that speaks to and redresses the experiences of anti-Blackness. Can, and, and this can build a more refined political ecology that uh, against the flattening ontologies of Anthropocene uh, frame. So this is one of the ways that we can repoliticize. This reparative humanism is one way to counter the dominant techno-economic narrative of the Anthropocene and to repoliticize the discourse. So some of this work that I'm talking about now is, is what I derive uh, inspiration from now and hopefully uh, hope to build future work on. So I'll stop there. Uh, I hope this was uh, interesting, a little bit interesting for you. Um, and uh, hopefully the paper will provide more uh, more meat onto what I was talking about. But I'm ha happy to talk uh, further on this and take any questions. Thank you. Excellent, Anki. Thank you very much. We're all clapping. That was excellent presentation. Sorry, and I actually gave you a two-minute warning too early in the oh, sorry, in the did chat. I exceed, did I exceed my time? I'm, I'm, no, no, you were perfect. So, so you were just great. Uh, I would just like to open it up briefly to to one or two questions, and then we'll we'll move on to Shakti. So, uh, anyone have some questions here? I think I yeah, you're you're kind of hitting the uh, nail on its head. Uh, this is a question that I think many social uh, energy social scientists are discussing that how can we expect to have a just energy transitions if the energy transitions is still taken over by the same uh, big capital and racialized structures that have that have maintained fossil energy systems for such a long time. I think that's why uh, I, I talked about this work by uh, Luke and Heinen and I can, I can uh, share the um, this, uh, the reference with you, they um, they talk about uh, community energy is a field that I also uh, work in, and I've sort of been disappointed with the field a little bit because it's it's a very techno economic field, and we see a lot of policies coming in in EU also now uh, with energy communities and 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 these questions, but they're again very techno economic in nature these policies, so so 
what Luke and Hannan argue is about a genuine, a genuine community energy system where, where energy systems are not just, um, they're not just about benefiting the community, but they're about, um, they're, they're about being under community control genuinely. And therefore uh, they talk about this uh, reparative community energy rather than, rather than redistributive community energy. Um, and they give the, they give example of these um, these solar uh, policies in New Orleans, which are quite interesting. And I would I would say maybe have a look at that. Um, I've never worked in New Orleans, and I would really like to understand myself how much how much these uh, policies have benefited Black communities there. But from Luke and Heinen's arguments, it seems like they 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 are making some sort of or they're trying some genuine steps through which there's access to finance. And that's that's another thing that we talk about um, solar home systems in this part of the world. But we know historically that people who have benefited from um, from feeding tariffs and things like that are already wealthy people who are able to afford to put solar solar home systems on, on their homes. So so that's I think that's a good example uh, for me to sort of think about what could be what could be a more genuine, a more uh, embedded, ingrained, in-depth, reparative energy system. Um, but beyond that, I don't have any other examples. I hope in future work, uh, I'm currently writing a project with, with a colleague uh, um, to work on uh, community energy systems and to understand what to understand what justice might look beyond energy itself and how communities might think of themselves as communities not within not just within energy framework but but beyond that so thinking about solidarities that exist within communities uh, and what kind of solidarities are there are they uh, exclusionary solidarities because community by its definition is closed also and it's inclusive but also exclusive at the same time excluding at the same time so these are questions that i don't really have answers for right now but hopefully uh, together we can find some more more genuine answers for these. Okay. Thank you very much, Gabby, for the question. And then I think we'll just leave it there. But uh, Ankit, I just want to, uh, I didn't mention this before, but I'm a geographer as well. So from University of Bristol, master's and PhD. So, I, and I want to, my master's, where my PhD was on energy as well. But I just want to tell everyone, like, how far geography, as you as a geographer, and actually just the field of, of we can say social studies and energy has progressed. So in 2005, 2006, when I was finishing my PhD, it was really an uphill struggle. So nobody was buying this energy stuff and social sciences. And I really like how you've, you've brought the field up to this level and, and brought colonialism in and these power relations. And, and you bring in Luke and Heinemann and also Swingadao, I see. So even these old geographers have come along too. And it's really interesting how you bring those in, but apply it to, to the area that you've just spoken about. So I just want to thank you. It's such a, a great area of research. So and, and, and as we'll see in a few minutes, it, it really complements Kara's uh, research as well. So, um, uh, so but with that, we got to move on. And uh, we have Shakti then. So I will hand it over to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. And I will share my screen too, if you'll let me. <laughs> and 
yeah, I also studied geography actually in university. Um, so this is so exciting for me to listen to. <laughs> and yeah, it's unbelievable how many times geography is useful for me in my job, even though I work very far outside of academia. Oh. I think I still might need permission to share screen. I can now. Oh. <laughs> um, there we go. All right. Thanks, everyone, for having me today. It's really exciting to go between two academics. I read both Ankita and Kara's work before this, so I was really <laughs> excited to listen to them. Um, my name is Shakti, and I'm the Director of Policy and Communications at Student Energy. Um, we're a global youth-led organization empowering the next generation of leaders who will accelerate the transition to a sustainable and equitable energy future. Um, we were actually founded in 2009 in Calgary, Alberta in Canada, but today we work globally with a network of 50,000 young people in over 120 countries, and we do a variety of things. We offer energy education, we do skill building and capacity building programs, um, we run the largest student-led energy conference in the world called the International Student Energy Summit, um, and we now have a network of university chapters around the world who kind of self-organize um, and take action on energy in their communities. So today, um, I, I'll tell you about a few of the programs that we're working on as well. Um, but I want to start with kind of highlighting two place-based um, experiences, community-level experiences of an unjust energy system. And because we have student-led chapters in so many countries around the world, we often hear about you know, the specific regional challenges that young people face. Um, and the country level challenges that young people are organizing um, to take action on. So I wanna highlight kind of the two of the pressing concerns that youth in our network have in Canada and in India. So first I'll share kind of two really short case studies of issues that young people are deeply concerned about um, that kind of illustrate how um, a, an unjust energy system kind of manifests, um, like Michael, you were saying far beyond just the scope of energy in so many different uh, aspects of life. And second, I hope to kind of talk about how, despite this level of complexity and regional specificity that um, we're seeing in the energy transition, young people share a remarkable commonality, um, despite coming from different countries, from different backgrounds, and how they want the energy transition to go, and how they want to take action on climate change. And that's largely a reason why we take such a global approach to our work, is we see that despite the backgrounds that young people come from, um, there's a really uh, striking kind of shared sense of um, momentum and priorities that we're seeing among young people. So I'll end off with some of the programs that we're working on as well to empower young people to take action. Um, but I will start with the community perspectives. Um, so to start us off, I just want to outline a few of the dimensions of energy justice that young people in particular raise often in the climate movement. There's intergenerational justice, which I've bolded because I'll be focusing especially on that in the latter half, and that's kind of what we work on at Student Energy. Um, there's energy access, you know, just the fact that over 800 million people worldwide still lack access to reliable electricity. 
There's the fact that around the world, people and sometimes entire communities are displaced or otherwise harmed by energy infrastructure projects um, without being able to participate in the decision-making process on those projects. And we also, you know, young people say we can't forget about global equity and the fact that in the context of the global energy system, it's just a reality that wealthier countries in the developed world have consumed far more than their fair share of global fossil fuel resources and are responsible for I think almost 80% of historical carbon emissions. And finally, we know that transitioning away from a heavily fossil fuel dependent energy system to one that is not will be really difficult. And it has to be a just one, particularly for workers and communities who rely on fossil fuels currently. So these are kinds of the dimensions of energy justice we often hear from young people, regardless of the country uh, that we're working with. But I'll start with a quick case study of an issue that's kind of ongoing in Canada. Um, so first up, despite pledging to reach net zero emissions by 2050 as part of the Paris Agreement, and despite you know, having many leading uh, climate policies at the provincial and national levels. Oh, I'm based in Canada, by the way. I don't know if I said <laughs> but that's why I'm covering this. Um, so despite having you know, quite a good reputation as a climate leader globally, the extraction of production of fossil fuels still plays a central role in Canada's economy and in kind of the cultural discourse. And we see the federal government continuing to fund and support several large scale energy projects that would only increase fossil fuel extraction and emissions. Um, in fact, a recent UN committee uh, reprimanded Canada for forging ahead with three major energy projects despite not receiving consent from the indigenous nations whose territories the projects pass through. Um, and these are the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, and the Site C Dam. And the Site C Dam is, is not a fossil fuel energy project. It's a large hydroelectric dam. But just like many other mega hydro projects, it's been called into question how environmentally sustainable it is in the long term and whether it's really the best way to meet the electricity needs of my province, British Columbia, considering the very serious human rights and land rights violations and the environmental impact associated with the project's construction. So these three projects are very much kind of on the foreground of uh, an unjust energy system in Canada. We've also seen indigenous land and water defenders face state violence and disproportionately harsh sentences for asserting their rights over unceded territory. One example which made international headlines last year is the RCMP raids in northern British Columbia on Wet'suwet'en camps, which were set up to block construction of the coastal gas link pipeline. And these raids have actually been ongoing throughout the pandemic for three consecutive years, and this follows almost a decade of Indigenous resistance against this project, and yet construction continues. And while we see these massive fossil fuel projects pushed through in the name of you know, economic necessity in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we still see continuing issues of lack of energy access in Canada. There's almost 200 remote Indigenous communities that still don't have access to a reliable energy grid and instead have to rely on diesel and generator for heating and electricity. And, you know, they're disproportionately exposed to toxic fumes and worsening energy poverty because this electricity is just very expensive. Um, so there's a lot going on in Canada and transitioning our energy system and economy will definitely be a complex process. Um, but there's some policy approaches that have been proposed that would kind of uh, inch us towards uh, energy justice. So one is 
a kind of rights-based and partnership-based approach to energy project development, um, which we've seen some examples of where companies or governments actively partner with communities, particularly indigenous communities to co-own um, or share ownership of energy project development and planning right from the beginning, um, but not nearly enough of this uh, as seen in Canada. And second is implementing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 calls to action, which specifically address systemic inequities facing Indigenous peoples in Canada. These have not yet been implemented, um, as well as implementing the UN Declaration of Rights on the rights of Indigenous peoples. Um, and one example in Article 10 would specifically protect climate activists and land and water defenders, um, as it mentions that Indigenous peoples shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. And finally, the third and fourth are kind of linked. It's really just pursuing the low cost, uh, low tech solutions that we know will work like energy efficiency um, because uh, this would help build resilience against fuel price volatility. Um, these are solutions we already have on hand and we don't need to rely on kind of novelty technology for. And they're solutions that would hugely benefit lowest income households first. Um, and I think I mentioned this right now, but a lot of clean energy uh, incentives and policies tend to benefit higher income households first, whereas, um, you know, policies, if we had prioritized them for the lowest income households, they would solve multiple problems at once. So that's a quick case study of Canada. Um, and this is something that a lot of young people are currently organizing around and student energy's aim is really to empower young people to participate in, um, in organizing in taking action in any way that we can. Um, now we'll swing over to the other side of the world, where we also have a very active youth network, which is in India. And in this past year, we've seen surging fuel prices in India, and these kind of make visible the existing inequities in our energy system. And of course, there's a, well, there's a lot of geopolitical reasons for these high fuel prices, but one aspect that we can't overlook that we often hear about from young climate organizers in India is the increased levies on petrol and diesel that are really taking a toll on low-income people and communities. And millions of you know, low-income frontline workers um, are disproportionately impacted by rising fuel prices, despite you know, the, uh, it, it might seem like it primarily affects people who drive cars or who own multiple cars, but the reality is it's in, in impacting a lot of really low-income frontline workers who rely on their vehicles to, to do their jobs um, or just to commute using two-wheelers. And these, of course, surging fuel prices always lead to a kind of uh, increased prices for essential goods and commodities as well. And this has also disproportionately impacted poor families and communities. And we've seen throughout the year um, kind of rising uh, anger among young people, among climate organizers about how throughout the pandemic, inequality has just worsened while all this has been happening. So billionaires saw their combined fortunes more than double during the COVID-19 pandemic in India. And for the first time, it coincided in 12 years, income tax collections were higher than the corporation tax collected by government. So people are being, um, individuals and households are being taxed while also having to pay, you know, uh, obscene prices for fuel. Uh, to get by while corporate taxes have been slashed. So we kind of see this worsening inequality while you know, on top of facing the other challenges from the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, similar to many other countries, energy and poverty is still a challenge. Um, despite a push in recent years to expand electricity con connection across India, 
Um, I think technically most places have a connection, like the percentage is very high if you just Google it, but many regions still lack access to both electricity and clean cooking fuels um, in a reliable and affordable way. So there's a lot of power cuts and rolling blackouts um, or energy is just far too unaffordable to actually use even if the connection is still there. So these are the many kind of frustrations and intersections of how an unjust energy system might manifest itself at a country level. And obviously the situation is quite different from Canada's experience of an unjust energy system, but there are some commonalities in how we might use policy to, to solve for these problems. And one is of course, prioritizing clean energy incentives and infrastructure project development to benefit the poorest first and improve standards of energy access and quality of energy for poorest communities first. Um, and again, I think this is a, case where we have to be careful that the benefits of the clean energy transition are actually equitably distributed and not just going to those who already benefit from the current energy system. And a second approach that's particularly important in places where there's, I think, a lot of um, inter-regional inequality and inequity is demand-side management um, to both reduce urban and rural inequalities and wealth inequities within countries because uh, India's power generation capacity is, is has grown over the years um, exponentially and yet many rural communities many poor communities remain without access while urban centers you know are their their energy consumption is skyrocketing so there is a clear need for demand side management with a demand reduction in some areas and demand increase in other areas and an evening out of energy consumption that's needed and finally, one thing that student energy is particularly passionate about is building capacity and providing directing funding for small scale and decentralized energy projects, including projects with youth leadership, because we see that if young people are empowered to kind of um, invest in their own communities and develop community projects at an early age, there's a pretty good chance they'll continue doing that for the rest of their careers. So we try to kind of be their, their first partner in developing these energy projects. So with those case studies in mind, Canada and India, uh, student energy, we have quite the challenge ahead of us trying to work in uh, all the global regions, but we are betting on young people and we're betting that training and empowering young people around the world will be um, kind of the key to, to solving these complex challenges. Um, I'll just give a quick overview of some of our programs and then, and then close off for questions. Um, Oh, and yeah, a note that I wanted to make on demand side management is, is I think there's a lot of fear that, you know, we'll have to give up a lot of things and sacrifice a lot of things if uh, we focus on demand. Um, but really reorienting energy policies and spending to focus on providing services that are actually essential for sustaining a thriving community, rather than on attempting to catch up to infinite growth in energy or resource demand can have many co-benefits for societies and nature. And these can be really simple policies, you know, focusing on rapid transit rather than on widening highways or incentivizing electric cars. There's a lot of choices we can make where the co-benefits will be numerous. So I think kind of uh, re-changing the narrative around what demand side management looks like will be an important part of, uh, of kind of making this palatable and building widespread public support for these policies. So one of the challenges that student energy faces is that the clean energy workforce is actually quite um, closed off for young people. Um, we know that the fossil fuel industry is notoriously inequitable, but currently clean energy also remains a privileged space. And on the slide, I just have a few stats 
uh, from the United States kind of illustrating how access to clean energy is just really unequal. And we hear this from young people all over the world, that the path to being part of the dress transition, even if young people want to, is not a straightforward one, especially for youth who are not from privileged backgrounds or who don't have the right connections. Um, and so we don't want to let these disparities persist. Um, and we also have to kind of counter the fact that fossil fuel industries have spent years and millions of dollars getting into university curricula and into high schools to recruit young people. So there's a lot of work to do on the other side to kind of build similar pathways into the clean energy system. And that's something we're working on at Student Energy. We are offering free globally accessible energy education and skill building programs like our Student Energy Fellowship and the Student Energy Careers Training. And these are geared specifically at getting young people their first step into a clean energy career and specifically for young people who don't have those connections or, you know, the, the typical backgrounds that are needed. But we also know that you can give young people all the skills they need, but if they don't have the right platform, enough resources and enough access to power and decision making, it will be very hard to make an impact. So one way we're bridging this gap is through the Global Youth Energy Outlook. So the Global Youth Energy Outlook is the first report of its kind, outlining what young people want to see uh, for the future of energy in their region leading up to 2030, and how they want to influence government and the energy industry. Um, the project is entirely youth-led, and we actually launched the initial findings just a couple months ago at COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, the report is online. It's a, it's a fun website. You can scroll through um, at gyeo.energy. And we hope that the Outlook will be a data-backed advocacy tool for young people. Um, we hope that they can take the Outlook to local, regional, national governments, and that it can kind of serve as a catalyst for collective action on energy. And at the same time, we're also building networks with governments and companies, and we're hoping that they use the Outlook as a framework to work with young people in not a tokenistic way, but in an actually meaningful and equitable way. And the final program that I just wanna give you a shout out about and actually a sneak peek into because it hasn't even launched yet, it's launching in two days. Um, it's called Student Energy Ventures. Um, so Student Energy Ventures is a brand new program and a direct to youth funding model that breaks down traditional barriers to clean energy entrepreneurship and clean energy project development. So um, Ventures, we, we have a couple of ambitious aims. One, we directly want to fund young people to develop clean energy projects in their communities. But at the same time, we it's not just about funding these projects, but also about making mentorship and training available so that a lot of young people from different backgrounds can actually access this funding. Um, and at, as we're developing these projects, we aim to open source the clean energy knowledge. So making these project development templates, uh, the contracts processes, everything accessible and open so that young people globally can kind of um, get a sneak peek into uh, what it takes to develop an energy project and hopefully try it out themselves. And we hope that by giving young people the necessary skills, knowledge, and the support system for their initiatives, um, they will actually be able to launch tangible community clean energy projects. And we've seen research that if young people kind of complete something, if they launch something by the time they turn 25 or 30, um, it makes a huge impact in how they kind of uh, pursue the rest of their career and um, their future prospects in kind of completing bigger uh, projects. So we want to be their first partner as well as a mentorship and support system to be able to you know, get projects on the ground. So that's Student Energy Ventures. It is 
brand new, <laughs> not yet launched, but we hope, you know, whether it's the decision making and the policy process with the outlook or the actual energy project development ventures, um, if it's interesting to you, get in touch with us. Um, for the latest on how to sign up for these, uh, Instagram and social media is the best way. So follow us at, at Student Energy um, <laughs> or check out our website, studentenergy.org, or you can just email me and ask me why I won't be involved and I will help. <laughs> and yeah, that is all. Thank you. Great, Shakti. Thank you so much. We're all clapping and just unfortunate we're not all together physically, but still amazing we can come together and have such great presentations online. So thank you so much. I would just like to open it up to one question or so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we didn't think through the timing too much. But anyways, uh, question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely depends on the community. Um, there's a couple different proposals that have been put forward by indi various Indigenous communities. Um, indigenous nations and Indigenous communities are actually some of the biggest owners of renewable energy projects in Canada. In terms of the number of projects, a lot of Indigenous communities do own their energy projects. So one solution would be for uh, projects that are developed on First Nations land, um, on unceded territory, for those nations to have a say in the ownership, whether they want to fully own the project and operate the project, um, um, or co-own it with governments or with companies, um, working from a rights-based and partnership-based um, approach would be one, one solution. Um, I know there's a energy storage company called Enerstore that uh, went up, went into an agreement with the uh, Six Nations, uh, First Nations group with a 50-50 ownership agreement of an energy storage project. Um, and so there have been, you know, some successful examples of co-ownership of, of these projects. So that's one solution. Um, and the other, in some cases, you know, it might be a, a matter of equitable compensation um, for projects that are developed on Indigenous land, just because so much of Canada is unceded territory. So I think it is on a case-by-case -case basis and, you know, on a project-by-project -project basis, but I think there's a lot of exciting potential and exciting kind of uh, track record that we've seen already of Indigenous communities um, kind of self-organizing and owning renewable energy projects in Canada and investing in that and continuing to kind of grow that, I think is an exciting prospect. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much, Shakti. And actually, I liked how your presentation, especially this discussion on the First Nations and the land complements on Keith's, uh, I would say, geographic academic perspective as well. So it's, it's much in, in tangible. Akit was very tangible in an academic sense. I, I want to compliment you on that for sure. But I just want to say Shakti uh, was able to, you know, just present in a very concrete manner uh, these, these projects and these policies that are actually on the ground and that they complement each other very, very well. So, um, okay, with that, unfortunately, I just want to make sure we have a little bit of time at the very end. Maybe we have to go over a few minutes. We'll try not to. But uh, I really uh, want to move on to, um, and sorry, Kara, I'm mispronouncing it. So, okay, Kara, um, to, to her presentation then. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let me get my screen set up. We're, we're all experts on not doing it right. So let's see how well you um, do it. Let's see here. Yeah, no, I think it's going to work. Hold on. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So, um, 
first of all, thanks so much for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to talk um, alongside Shakti and Ankit and see all the um, resonance between our work. I can see why um, you put us together. So that's really always wonderful. Um, and I'm here to talk about um, energy as a story or as a set of narratives, which is, I think has al already been discussed a bit. Um, and the book that the book, The Birth of Energy that um, Michael mentioned is also available. It's, it's an open access book, so you can also um, download it for free. But in that book, I um, talk about energy itself as having been captured as a kind of techno-scientific story by the science of thermodynamics and the politics of work. And um, I believe you all read um, an article I wrote called Energy and Domination, which is where I'm going to focus the talk today. But it's really um, along similar lines of trying to recognize these underlying assumptions that are made, especially in white Western spaces and, and the kind of popular imagination in those spaces that don't often get queried. And so um, still maintain this, this hold over how people think about energy and especially then get transferred onto renewable energy projects in a way that, um, as other speakers have said, is problematic. So I want to start really this um, this article I wrote started with my frustration at um, the way coal and oil and gas interests at my own university um, continued to block the kinds of uh, research that, that could be done or that was happening. And um, that this is kind of a worldwide problem. So this chart shows different sort of premier universities in the US who, and this is only through 2008, this is a, a report through 2008, and the different um, partnerships that they maintain with um, major oil companies. Um, and on the one hand, you could just see this as, you know, like the problem of money. They have a lot of money, people want money, research needs money, and that's true. However, I also think that the, especially um, some of the scientists doing this work really adhere to this eco-modernist techno-scientific narrative about energy in which these projects get justified. Um, however cynically they are, they do get justified publicly. Um, and so I'm interested in that narrative and um, I found it recently uh, in the author Andy Weir, who's this very popular sci-fi author in the US. He wrote the book that was made into this Matt Damon movie, and he wrote a recent book that's going to be made into a Ryan Gosling movie. And so these kinds of like big um, popular understandings of technology and energy are um, important because uh, they continue to kind of cement this messaging. So uh, Andy Weir, the author said, I don't believe that any policy or idea for 
reversing or slowing climate change is going to be of any use or do any good until the technology develops to the point where there's a zero emissions energy source that's cheaper. This kind of encapsulates, I think, still what many, if not most people working in climate and energy policy seem to believe. And it's sort of the uphill battle against which I imagine many of us have to fight when we enter these more mainstream spaces. Um, and then we have the CEO of ExxonMobil, Darren Woods, who says, you know, climate change isn't a threat, it's an evolution, because um, evolution is driven by technology. So that again, this messaging of there's a space for big oil because it has money to help with development. Um, and what we really need is technology. Um, so sorry, somehow my computer froze. Okay, there we go. The what I call the ace in, in our pockets that we have, and I say we as like we here, assuming that we are all interested in energy justice and suspicious of these techno-scientific claims. The ace in, in the pocket is the problem of energy additions. And this is a problem that really cannot be answered by the, the eco-modernist assumptions about technology. And this problem is that um, at least since the so-called industrial revolution, every um, quote unquote energy transition has not been a um, neat substitution of one fuel source for the other, but rather overall has actually just continued to expand energy consumption and often adds another kind of energy on top of pre-existing uh, fuel sources. And indeed, so far, even though we have these wonderful stories about the expanse of renewable energies, they are not substituting out fossil fuels on a one-to-one -one basis and are for the most part continuing to expand energy consumption. And this probably gets to some of what Shakti was saying about the need to really talk about demand in a way that um, is still just and and um, really based around community needs as opposed to corporate needs. So if we have this assumption about technology solving the problem, we're going to get this cheap, wonderful energy source someday. You know, the reality, the historical evidence is that that has not worked and i think it's a real if if any of you are in a room with one of these people you can bring this out and say well how do you <laughs> what are you going to do about fossil fuels because that's not enough right so these two problems the problem of of just um this narrative continuing to dominate uh mainstream spaces and public imagination and this problem of energy additions made me want to write about what is this big kind of human story? And I think it really is an Anthropocene story, which is what Anki was talking about. And how can we act, look at some recent um, studies of these historical transitions to question and challenge and upend them? And so um, I wanted to look at um, histories I know about two of the quote unquote biggest transitions that are often used in the civilization narrative. And one of those is agriculture, the agricultural revolution, and one of them is the industrial revolution. And both of these, we have 
recent critical histories showing quite a different story. And I and and what I wanted to do in this article is bring those two um, histories together to um, help us unsettle this energy myth. So um, the first is James Scott, who wrote Against the Grain. Many of you might have read that, this book. Um, and he calls the civilization narrative the idea that the agricultural revolution was an epoch-making leap in mankind's well-being, at long last a settled life that promoted household arts and the development of civilization. Um, the the problem with this these assumptions is that historically they're simply not true. Um, first of all, agriculture and sedentary life pre-existed this so-called revolution when we see the rise of hierarchical states and civilizations for thousands of years. So um, these kind of big grain states that we associate with the agricultural revolution did not invent um, these technologies. And on the other hand, these technologies did not teleologically lead to a certain kind of political hierarchy or way of using them. And in fact, there's even archaeological evidence of cities and more dense urban environments that were not um, necessarily arranged hierarchically, or at least there's not evidence that they were. And so the notion that once we, once we as some sort of human species got agriculture as a technology, it led inevitably towards a certain progressive one-way track of um, development is, is really a myth and, not, and nothing more and is actually, um, is, doesn't conform to the historical record that we have. And I think it's also noteworthy that um, this picture that I have here, which is kind of a funny picture and it, um, a very white Western picture, this is a picture that comes out of the 19th century when we start to have evolutionary thinking and we take these ideas about a civilizational narrative and then we all of a sudden have a kind of racist and um, colonialist scientific framing for what the development of human history looks like. And what's interesting too about this kind of one-way teleological understanding of human history is that even for those who might crit critique or see these revolutions or transitions as negative, so for example, it's become a trend to say, well, this agricultural revolution was really bad because now we started eating grains and we in our diet got um, poor, or the industrial revolution is bad because now there's climate change. There's still underneath that story, there's still this assumption that um, civilization kind of marched in this one way path. And if we had these negative externalities, they weren't relevant to understanding the actual unfolding of technological innovation. So in other words, the causal feature is this technological innovation piece. And then we might get these negative things that happen and then we have to deal with the negative things that happen. So instead, um, 
using Scott and then moving to the Industrial Revolution um, and drawing on Andreas Malm, who similarly uh, kind of added a lot of complexity to our understanding of the fossil fuel transition, instead of thinking of technological innovation as this kind of teleological driving force for something called humans, um, it's possible to understand these transitions as political transitions. Um, and so for mom looking in the 19th century, um, and he calls it the myth of human enterprise, but it very much corresponds or parallels this myth of civilization or the ascent of man, which I've put on the title of this slide. Um, and some of the myth of human enterprise, some of the assumptions are one, assumptions about scarcity. So this um, goes back to that kind of survivalist mentality that Ankit mentioned in the Anthropocene, that there's like scarce resources that are constantly causing people to need innovations and be competing with each other. Um, the myth is, or the, the assumption that makes it a myth is that this scarcity is what causes these transitions or causes certain technologies to be picked up. Um, another assumption is that somehow it's part of human nature to always be wanting more and more and more energy and that every time there's a new technology that provides it, there's this kind of unrelenting unfolding of energy intensification. And again, um, as I've already mentioned briefly with Scott's history, but also other histories, including um, looking at the 19th century, that just doesn't seem to be the case. There were these technologies pre-existed the intensification by decades in the case of fossil fuels, thousands of years in the case of the agricultural revolution. It's simply not true that everyone given or kind of exposed to or inventing a piece of technology is going to use it in an extractive, expansive growth forever way. Um, another assumption is about technology as a solution to this problem of scarcity. And then finally, um, what I've mentioned this in the, the previous slide that any bad effects are side effects, meaning um, that they're kind of peripheral to understanding the course of history. Instead, um, if we start to think about in these two cases how these transitions happened, I think with both of these rereadings, um, I argue that these are better understood as moments of political innovation when certain kinds of political systems uh, kind of parasitized already existing technologies, selected ones not because they were more powerful or cheaper or better for humans, quote unquote, but because they were technologies that happened to lend themselves better to centralized power, um, to extractive projects. And so in the case of, for example, grain states, um, Scott points out that you see states organizing around certain kinds of grains, but not other kinds of crops and plants because they were less conducive to taxation, to surveillance, to storage, and so on. In the case of fossil fuels, 
at the time of the transition, fossil fuels were not more, they were not cheaper and they were not necessarily more powerful than the already existing industrial energy source of water, which was kind of the main competitor at the time. But what they were better at is um, resisting the rising demands of labor in this period, which um, was not only a problem in Northern Europe, but was an imperial problem. The problem of kind of wanting to extract as much labor as possible for as little cost as possible. So um, putting these stories together, uh, some patterns or things I would want to highlight would be, again, that these technologies were not invented and then that leads to a transition. These technologies pre-existed pre the transitions. The technology of the transition was not chosen for being um, more efficient or cheaper or more powerful or better for the broader public. Rather, the technology of the transition better served political hierarchy and extraction in these cases. And by telling the story this way, or simply kind of pointing out the historical evidence for these transitions happening as political transitions, um, it's I think it can help to start opening up talking about energy as inherently political one as being about the way that societies organize activities and also value certain activities. Um, and also starting to expand our historical literacy around the fact that these stories that jump around from agricultural revolution to in the case of Western history, ancient Greece to the um, rise of capitalism and, and the industrial revolution are very narrow, limited, um, curated stories uh, that justify Western power in reverse. And therefore, it helps in my mind to emphasize the need to expand our imaginations around energy, um, especially on this question of um, the eco-modernist kind of push to um, dismiss any other ideas about energy as somehow being going back to the past or doing without technology or um, giving things up. And instead to say, there's actually been historically lots of ways of doing energy technology that didn't have to be extractive and didn't have to be to correspond with a rise of political hierarchy or with this commitment to unlimited expansion and growth. Um, and so as just one tag on at the end, um, I added this right as somebody asked a question about renewable energy I'll put a pitch in for a paper, another article I wrote with two colleagues called Toward Feminist Energy Systems, where we were trying to um, think about precisely, it sounds like these questions that both Shakti and Ankit are interested in of what would it look like to develop energy systems that are truly just, um, taking into account the fact that it's not really just about substituting one fuel source for another. So here we had four different dimensions and tried to kind of um, put together 
and really it's just curating a lot of wonderful work that's being done in this space, but put together some qualities of, of, um, of systems. And a lot of these things have been mentioned by my fellow speakers about um, pluralist, publicly owned and controlled, um, relational, distributed, and taking into account the violence of energy production as not something that's going to be erased by technology, but something that needs to be um, embraced as part of living and then mitigated and really made transparent and responsible. So I'll end there. That was kind of a lot, but um, thanks again for the invitation. Well, thank you so much. All right. We're all clapping again. <clears throat> it's been amazing. All right. We, we still have a few minutes and so maybe we can go over five or 10 minutes. Depends who, who can stay. Um, so with that, does anyone have a, have a question, a follow-up question? I get to ask it, but I'm, I'm totally happy not asking it. So I have a question. Okay. Uh, Lauren. It's, it's related to your last slide in, in the feminist energy system. And I was wondering if you could explain what makes it a particular a feminist energy system as opposed to maybe decolonial or um, just energy system. Thanks. Um, that's a great question. I, I think um, that it's not, it's certainly not feminist instead of, so um, instead of those other options, I actually think what we need is an explosion and blossoming of all kinds of critical work, taking into account all kinds of different experiences that um, are had in unjust energy systems. So I very much see it as a partner project. And the reason we um, took on feminist thinking is because this is a team of researchers, myself included, that have been particularly interested in the way um, white hegemonic masculinity is, as an identity is attached to fossil fuels and authoritarianism. And the way that um, that kind of misogyny is um, really tied up to, tied up with violence against nature, against the earth, but also against um, women and against trans queer folk and also against climate migrants and and so um, in the article we are pushing back against um, the tendency to think about gender and energy as a as only a problem of women accessing or energy or being represented at the table but also to think about feminism as a really helpful set of tools for thinking about power and how power is arranged hierarchically. Um, and so that was our effort to kind of try to take a lot of this feminist work, much of which is intersectionally entwined with black feminist thought or decolonial feminist thought, but try to really take that work and see what it would mean to um, because we had done so much thinking in the kind of hyper masculinity of fossil fuels, we were all thinking, let's let's think about what would feminist energy look like. Um, so that was fun. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. And maybe just to underscore, I just want to say I was putting together um, a, a course for the spring for their executive MBA. 
and about energy and innovation. And I thought, okay, Elon Musk and Tesla. And then I thought, oh, Henry Ford and the whole production process there. And I was like, yeah, I put all the material. And then I'm like, wait, these are two white men. And then like, I can't have this. So, I mean, I can have it. I am having it. But I, I went out and I tried looking for, I don't want to say a feminist perspective, but just female leaders in the energy space doing things. And yeah, so far, I, I, maybe you can suggest, but but I haven't been able to really find it. I mean, I, can, I, I was looking for cook stoves or something like this, but in this hyper-masculine space that you described, it's Elon Musk, right? And, and this is the space. And finding other stories and other, I would just say, identities, I'll mischaracterize it, but that are out there that describe how technology is changing and how energy is changing and everything these stories, I even looked on Harvard, Harvard Business Review, and there's not many case studies there to, to draw on. So there's, there's just not a lot of there, actually. Um, let, let me, uh, sorry, Cara, did you have any um, respond? We, we have her for another minute or two. I still have a short question, Michael, if I may. Yes. Uh, yeah, so thank you very much uh, for your very insightful presentations. I really enjoyed listening to all of you. And uh, it was very interesting to, uh, to see that you, uh, all three of you um, mentioned community energy, which is actually my, uh, my topic for my PhD uh, research. And, um, and I would also, I would uh, like to follow up on this and ask you, I mean, I don't want to ask you, uh, what do you think is the solution for a just and, uh, community energy? Uh, because community energy as we see in, in studies that were done so far it's not inherently just i mean it's really difficult to have access especially young people or women or people with a uh, uh, low income i mean the access to community energy is not very easy for them so i don't maybe i'm not gonna ask you what is the solution but maybe what is the direction to look at um to to envision just energy community in the future. I hope it makes sense. Uh, Kara, I'll let you answer that and then, then we'll oh, let okay. you go. <laughs> um, so, so this is a real, this is a very um, popular argument among eco-modernists, which is that um, some, they, claim and I, i'm very sorry i'm so wrapped up in eco-modernist right now but i'm really um writing and thinking a lot about ways to counter the that because i see it as so prominent in climate discussions and kind of western approaches to policy um but one of the arguments is is uh well environmentalists don't care about energy poverty and we need technology so I think it's for me from a narrative perspective, it's really to insist upon um, decoupling technology from the eco-modernists. Like there, we can have technology if it's owned by and and imagined by and envisioned by um, the people who are using it or the people who need it, as opposed to being owned by and profiting. Um, others and big corporations, that makes a big difference. Um, and I think the other, I, I really liked what Ankit said about community being sort of the question of exclusivity, 
that's a really interesting research question. I hope you write about that. I would like to read your thoughts. Um, but I do think that is important to point out that a lot of um, these kind of community-based solar or wind projects we see sometimes are turning up in more privileged white communities, especially in the US, if you know people who, who might have more means and resources and time to do this. And so it's exciting to find projects that aren't like that. But I do think that's a limitation of only thinking about um, one kind of mobilization. And it's, it's important as much as we have decentralized on that table that I, that I put, and as much as I am really attracted to the idea of, of kind of small scale community-based systems, I, I think it's important not to rule anything out. I think in some regions and cities and areas, there might be bigger kind of systems that make more sense. So to me, I'm really coming to think that it's about ownership. And this gets to the indigenous question um, that, that that's maybe a really important question for justice. Like who is going to benefit not only from the access, but who actually owns and controls the system? Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.